He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, April 24, 2021, I had an interesting week. You will find out more as I speak with the troubadour, our troubadour, Dave Gunders, who gives us Way of Forgetting. What a song that is. To me, it's a beautiful exploration of feelings when somebody goes through loss. Let's not forget what happened in Boulder. The Boulder Massacre inspired a lot of columnizing by me, by others. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is a regular op-ed writer for the New York Times and the Washington Post. She worked for the New York Times for years after getting her medical degree. She wrote about the Boulder Massacre, and you will hear from her shortly after Dave Gunders. Craig's Lawyers Lounge welcomes Peter Schaefer, lawyer and outstanding sports agent. He's represented so many famous NFL stars, Barry Sanders, Steve Atwater, Jerome Bettis, Joe Thomas. Find out how he's done it. Find out the highs and lows of his interesting life. Without further ado, the very accomplished doctor, Elizabeth Rosenthal. Dr. Rosenthal, Craig Silverman, thanks a lot for being on my show. Oh, no problem. Dr. Rosenthal, I feel like maybe we're living parallel lives. You grew up in Scarsdale, New York City area. I'm a Denver kid, but I think we're both the class of 1974 right in the middle of the baby boomers. Am I right? Yep, absolutely. It was an interesting time to be born. I noticed on your extensive Wikipedia page you were born in 1956, and we've seen a lot during our time. Yeah, well, we've certainly seen the narrative on certain issues shift dramatically, and one of them is guns, right? (laughs) Absolutely. You made a career choice, and we definitely will get to guns, but you have had such a fascinating career. I mean, you're the author of An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. It's a fantastic read. How did you decide to get into journalism? You not only are a doctor, you worked for the New York Times. I believe you're editor-in-chief of the Kaiser Health News. Tell us how you got there. (laughs) Well, it was kind of a long road. I come from a family of doctors, as I mentioned in my New York Times piece. And I guess the assumption was always, if you didn't know what to do, you became a doctor. But I was always really more interested in kind of public health and international health. I did the pre-med thing. And then, you know, then following that path, I actually was on a fellowship in England for three years but then came back and went to medical school. And after six months in medical school, I left to work in journalism for a year. 
and thought, oh, no, this isn't a stable career. I'm going to go back and become a doctor. But I always had this bug where I loved writing. And so from that year, uh, working at a very mediocre science magazine, which probably no longer exists, called Science Digest, I got a lot of bylines and appreciated the value of storytelling. So I kept writing all through the remainder of medical school and through most of residency when I could find the, the time. And then popped out at the other end as an ER doctor, which meant that I had three shifts in the ER each week and two days to write, which was kind of the idea. And I really liked both of them, actually, because in a New York City emergency room, you see not just medical problems, but you see social problems, public health problems, the things our healthcare system doesn't deal with. And the more I worked in the emergency room, and remember, I was still writing on the side at that point, I kind of moved up the journalism food chain a little bit and was doing freelance work for a whole bunch of people, but including the New York Times. And after five years in the ER, I was feeling like, wow, you know, this system just isn't working. So I have more impact writing about its problems than, you know, stitching up cuts one at a time. So when the Clinton health reform effort came along, the New York Times said, do you want to come on board at full time and cover that? And it was kind of a forced decision point in my life. I just had my second kid and the overnight shifts in a New York City ER were getting pretty exhausting. And so I did. I jumped. And I can't say I've never looked back because there are times when I do miss the person-to-person -person contact of an emergency room and the contact with people of all walks of life and the problem solving that goes on there. But, you know, I think for me it was the right decision, and that led to go to an assignment in Beijing where I wasn't supposed to be covering health care. I thought when the Clinton health reform failed, I thought, I'm sick of covering health care. So I got an assignment to overseas. But, of course, when I was in China, it was a time for bird flu, HIV, AIDS, and SARS, which we all know a lot about now because of covid so I did do a lot of health coverage there. After that, I moved on to covering environment, which is really my alternate passion. I thought it was so important. But at some point, the New York Times, and it was mostly overseas, the, the New York Times said, it's time to come back and cover health. There's this thing called the ACA going on, and we need you. So I did go back somewhat reluctantly, I have to say, because I was very passionate about climate change issues. And the editor, who's now the executive editor there, Dean Bacay, said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, you have good people covering the ACA. What I want to understand is how American healthcare got so damn expensive. I mean, I'd been away for 10 years. And in those 10 years, I'd experienced healthcare in Denmark, where, you know, I'd broken my wrists and got my wrist fixed for $140 with apologies for having to charge me. I sliced open my forehead in Rome and went to Gemelli Hospital, which is the Pope's hospital, right? So no shabby place. They stitched it up in the ER and charged me again with apologies, 120 euros. When I came back to the U.S., I was like, 
yeah, this ACA thing is important, but how did our medical system get so crazy expensive? So Dean luckily let me do a series called Pain Till It Hurts, which is about the high cost of American health care. And we use different patient examples to show why the ordinary things in our system, like getting stitches in an ER, getting a colonoscopy, you know, getting an echocardiogram costs often hundreds of times what they do in other countries and the suffering that causes that's financial, not medical. And when that was done, I was on the special projects team and they said, okay, what's your next project? And I was thinking, well, I really still don't feel like I understand enough about these healthcare costs. Like I had understood that the reason colonoscopies and my colonoscopy in specific was so expensive was because there was this thing called a facility fee added on for the operating room in which it was performed, which meant my colonoscopy cost $12,000 as opposed to about $400 in most of Europe. And I said, well, yeah, I know there is this thing called a facility fee, but who invented it? Like, why do we have that? Because that doesn't exist anywhere else on earth. So I basically took another leap of faith and I learned, you know, it basically unravels both for me and I hope for American patients slash consumers and voters, how our system evolved into this kind of crazy high-priced Rube Goldberg machine where the care we get is driven more by profit and revenue than by what's good for patients. Well, thank God for people like you spilling the beans. And I've not read your book, but I do practice law. And wow, to interact with the doctor, sometimes it's like cats and dogs, especially if you try to get a doctor from Kaiser. But I think lawyers are part of the problem. Tell me if I'm wrong. As a trial lawyer, plaintiff's personal injury lawyer, if somebody gets in a horrible collision or gets injured in any manner, not their fault, we're going to take the case. And part of our damages is going to be that hospital bill. And we like that, even though we know that the full hospital bill doesn't get paid. The insurance companies have side deals. I would say the insurance companies, I haven't read your book, are probably going to be at the end of the line. And then they turn around a lot of these corporate interests and they pay for campaigns of politicians who will do their bidding. Am I close to where you go with this? Well, I think in many ways, yes. I think lawyers are in some ways the lowest level beneficiaries, I say in my book, because everyone wants a villain, right? Everyone wants to say, oh, it's pharma or it's the hospitals or it's the insurers. It's actually all of the above. There was a wonderful line in the quote in the book uh, from someone who's a healthcare executive who says, everyone's feeding at the trough. And that's exactly what's right. I mean, insurers are making vast amounts of money. Doctors are doing well. Pharma is certainly getting to charge whatever they want here, even though they are much more regulated in pricing everywhere else in the world. What you might not think about is that 
private equity. Many of the big banks are also feeding at the trough because they are bankrolling what I call the hotelification of our hospitals, building new wings, building spas, doing gourmet meals. Like, I don't think hospitals have to be prisons, but they are not seven-star hotels. And that's part of why we pay so much, because that's what we reward in American medicine, not good, basic care. What about doctors and politics? Have you gotten politically active? Now you've stepped away from the New York Times. Am I right? You're a contributor, but you have another job. Are you more political now? No. Well, now I'm editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, which, by the way, has nothing to do with Kaiser Permanente. Good. We're an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom. And we do look a lot at, I moved to Washington, D.C. for this job, at the intertwining of politics and healthcare in this country, which in fact makes it very, very hard to change things. It's one of the major impediments. We need our politicians to be brave and kind of disruptive of our healthcare system. But when you look at campaign donations, when you look at who are the constituencies of Virtually every senator and congressman, they are in bed, shall I say, with their local hospital system, not just because they often do get significant amounts of campaign donations, political lobbying from those hospitals, but also because those hospitals are a huge source of jobs. I mean, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center is the biggest employer, I believe, in the entire state of Pennsylvania. So are the senators going to say to them, you know, you can't charge that much for an MRI. Wow, that's an insane bill. We're going to regulate that or we're going to say you can't send out surprise bills. They're a little bit reluctant to do that, right? Right. Everybody wants to make money. I imagine journalism probably wasn't as lucrative as other Harvard-trained doctors that you went to medical (laughs) school with, but there's more to life than money. And you've been living in Washington. I wonder your reaction personally to the events of the last election culminating on January 6th with what happened at our nation's capital. You lived there. Yeah, and I I would say as a longtime New Yorker, I do feel like it has been something, and this is going to sound weird, something of a privilege to live here these last almost five years now, in part because I understand much more about how the sausage is made and all the impediments there are in our country to doing sensible things that virtually every American wants. I mean, you know, in polling, for example, Americans say politicians should do, one of their first priorities should be to bring down drug prices. But very, very little happens in that arena because, you know, the voters, the citizens, A, are not really influential enough and loud enough compared to many of the corporate interests that you see represented here in D.C. You see how fulsome the lobbying industry is. You see how politicians are often responding to what gets votes and what message sounds good rather than what actually matters to people on the ground. They're quite removed from 
their constituents and their actual day-to-day concerns. You know, living through Trump times has been a particularly interesting experience, not to be relived, I would say. There were, you know, not just in healthcare, which is my kind of obsession, but in many parts of our governance, there were huge steps back. I mean, the COVID pandemic was much worse than it needed to be because of a very flawed and dysfunctional response where the scientists who should have been leading it were often undermined, kneecapped, muzzled by the administration. That was incredibly distressing as a journalist to see and also very difficult to report on because normally the people you would go to to get good information about COVID and how we should respond to it were not able to speak to journalists, or if they did so, it was at their own peril, which is upside down and backwards and led to hundreds of thousands more deaths than was necessary, including, I should say, that of my own mother. So oh, my this, gosh. I'm so sorry for you. This was quite personal to me. So that was something jarring to see. Likewise, the January 6th riot at the Capitol was really upsetting as someone who now feels like D.C. is kind of an adopted hometown. The Capitol is very much a place where I and others in D.C. felt was a thing of wonder. It was a wonderful place to walk around. It was amazing to me when I first moved down here that as an ordinary citizen, if Congress was in session at 10 at night and I saw that light on on the dome, I could walk over there and go in and just see what was happening. You know, the open sense of democracy was just, it was really gratifying, made me proud. We lived that first year very close to the Capitol. And then to see how that changed once President Trump was elected was rather distressing. That sense of openness and of the people. And now, You know, it's been a tough four years, and the Biden administration has a lot on its plate. It has very ambitious plans, but there is a sense of hope in this city, which is, as you probably know, strongly Democratic, pretty much evenly divided African-American and non, that there are better things to come. And certainly in my topic area, healthcare. The Biden administration has done a much better job of confronting the COVID pandemic. Well, God willing, Trump time is over, but I fear it's not. I just read in the New York Times the battle between Liz Cheney, who represents Wyoming, Colorado's neighbor to the north. She went to my alma mater, Colorado College, where her mother also went. And I just think some sensibility she got from that good education had her stand up to Donald Trump, but not that many Republicans are standing up with her. I know a lot of doctors are Republicans. Has this moved them? Uh, For me, I'm a bit of a centrist and an independent. Tell me the issue. I'll tell you who I support. But with Donald Trump, it's different. And I would think for doctors, men and women of science, they would see the way he disparaged Dr. Fauci and science in general, and has it moved the needle with respect to fellow members of your profession? 
I think it's made journalists reevaluate what objectivity means and be bolder in saying, you know, pre-Trump, it was very hard for a journalist to say, that's a lie. You know, there was PolitiFact, who we at KHN partner with, and you were really reluctant to say, that's a lie. But there were just so many lies that I think it drew out journalists to feel like, no, we have to really say what's true. I had no fear about the journalists and the ones at the New York Times, and my question should have been better. I'm thinking about medical colleagues, the profession you've left but kept in touch with. Do you think, you know, prominent doctors are reevaluating their support of the Republican Party? You know, we've done a bunch of stories, and I do think what we see is that the younger doctors coming onto the scene tend much more towards interest in social justice, in health equity, and system reform. You know, while the American Medical Association is opposed to any kind of single-payer system, the American Medical Students Association supports it. So I think there is a sea change going on in the medical profession about what's important, partly because many of the physicians my age, and many of them are really good people, are just as, you know, distressed as I am in writing that book and in covering this day to day to see how the profession that we all cherish and mostly entered thinking we were doing good and only good has been abused for financial and political gain that has nothing to do with what's good for our patients. Part of that abuse we watch on TV with constant pharmaceutical commercials. Do you have this ailment? Tell your doctor this or that. Does that happen in Denmark or Italy or is that in America? No, we're phenomenon? the only ones that are lucky enough to have that. Actually, it was quite amusing. Much of the social media chatter when Harry and Meghan did their interview with Oprah from overseas was, was those who were watching it live in uh, Great Britain were going like, wow, do Americans have to watch all these ads all the time? Like, are they all sick or are all cancer patients in the U.S. like flying kites and riding bicycles? What is this? It's bizarre when looked at from the lens of overseas, but for better and worse, since the 1990s, it's been considered legal in the U.S. It didn't exist before that, those ads. And it has been upheld again and again as a free speech right of the pharmaceutical firms. You know, personally, I wish that weren't the case. You know, I don't know politically how that can be undone at this point. But, and you know, this this puts all journalists, all media people in a very uncomfortable position because of much of what we see on cable TV probably couldn't be financed if they didn't have those ads, right? You watch some of the cable networks at night and every other ad is is for some drug or medical institution. And I can tell you the one thing all those drugs have in common is not that they're so great for you, but that they're really, really expensive. And that's why it's worth advertising, because if those companies get two people to go ask their doctor and get prescribed that drug, it's often you know, $100,000 in the pocket for the year. 
They're really expensive in part because of the nonstop advertising, which enriches the media companies, which love it, especially in these times. The New York Times probably takes those ads too, right? They do, of course. Of course, you know, I I sometimes joke that one of the wonderful things about coming to KHN, Kaiser Health News, is we are foundation supported. So, you know, when I was at the New York Times, I would write one of the the articles in the Pain Till It Hurts series was about the high price of prescription drugs in the U.S. compared to other countries, which has one of the best, I will say, interactives of all time. I think we call it raining drugs, where you can buy like 3,000 colchicine pills in Saudi Arabia for the amount one costs in the U.S., for example. But, you know, as people, readers would scroll through that story about how high our prices are and why we pay them, there would be drug ads. And I was like, no, you know, kind of cognitive dissonance. But that is what supports much of our media now, unfortunately. It would be nice to diversify advertising a little bit, but that's where money is. You know, the pharmaceutical industry, the hospital industry, the device industry, they have a lot of money. What do you think really runs America, the politicians or big business or the voters? or a combination of all three. I'm just wondering about it because you're passionate about climate change. I'm just a lawyer. I didn't go to medical school. I don't understand science that well, but I'm starting to see that the same people who poo-pooed climate change are the people who denied the science behind COVID. And I'm making some logical deductions and starting to realize, hey, maybe Elizabeth Rosenthal's right. This is a crisis. Do you see the connection there or other people drawing the same conclusion? I do see some connection. And, you know, if I was not a journalist and wanted to be more of an activist, after I wrote my book, I wanted to start a kind of movement called We the Patients, because as medical decisions are made about policy, as decisions are made about climate policy, those of us who are most affected in the former case patients and the latter case, really all of us, but those who live in areas that are more ravaged by climate catastrophes, we don't have a seat at the table, right? So it's hard to get heard. And particularly after Citizens United, the people who are making money from medicine, from climate, have a lot of levers to push to get their views known in Washington. And they also often, and this is particularly true in the pharmaceutical world, they are very good at it. You know, strategically, like I got to hand it to them. They don't have the head of a big pharmaceutical firm coming up and bullying a congressperson to vote for a bill they want, or which is always don't regulate drug prices is the mantra of the pharmaceutical industry. What they do instead is have a patient who is using that drug and benefiting from it come in and say, look how much this has helped me. You know, isn't it worth the sky? You know, why shouldn't we pay Why shouldn't the insurers pay $500,000 for this treatment? So they're really good at promoting their message. And the senators and congressmen I've spoken to, you know, it's really hard when a parent comes in with a child with a disease and says, how can you not pay whatever it takes to cure my kid? You respond to that as a human being, even though 
politically and in a national sense, boy, that's not good policy. We should think, yes, you know, what's your health worth? What's your child's health worth? It's invaluable. So we need as a society to place what is a reasonable, sustainable, affordable price on that. And then the providers have to accept that price as what they will get, including from pharma to hospitals to doctors. And that doesn't socialized medicine. Everyone goes, oh, you're talking about socialized medicine. It doesn't necessarily mean socialized medicine. I mean, Germany has a healthcare system that is very decentralized. There are lots of insurers, but what they do have is a price schedule that says, this is what you can charge for this service. And maybe we need that. We have been hoping that competition would get us there. You know, if 10 different Doctors are offering the same service. Maybe they'll compete on price. But, you know, we've been waiting for that to work for years. And so far, it hasn't because so far what we see is if a few different hospitals or doctors are offering a similar service, they all charge a lot and they all look at each other and go, hey, we're getting away with it. And so they keep doing it and sometimes even raise the price higher. So the levers we have at the moment are not terribly effective. Joe Biden, during his campaign, said he would talk about regulating Mm -hmm. Medicare drug prices. Hasn't said much about that since. And the pandemic will make it even harder for the Biden administration to effectively take on health care costs because, you know, where did the vaccines come from? I bet you took some poli-sci courses. I majored in it at Colorado College, but a lot of it is right up your wheelhouse. Having lived in China, you're talking about industry when they get involved and capitalism runs amok. Is this too socialist? Let's turn to the gun industry and what's happened to the NRA and how firearm sales really accelerated for a while there. Let's turn to uh, Colorado and the tragedy we experienced and talk about some of these concepts. First of all, Dr. Rosenthal, do you know much about Colorado? Because if you turned on local TV before the massacre in Boulder, you'd see a lot of ads for King Supers. It's in our Denver Post and Daily Newspaper. That is Colorado, King Supers. Do you know anything about our great state? I do because we at KHN, Kaiser Health News, we actually have two correspondents there. I have only visited a few times, but I am learning a lot about it. Tell us about the NRA, the premise of your column that got a lot of national distribution and attention because the premise of your piece is, hey, I'm not anti-gun. I learned about it as a kid, but the NRA of my yesteryear and Craig's yesteryear that's not the same NRA of today. Yeah, and, and also as an ER doctor. So basically, I'm not a fan of guns, put it that way, partly because what we now define as guns in our society. I like almost everyone I knew. I grew up in the suburbs of New York. My dad was a doctor, as I mentioned. And, you know, shooting was a hobby. He was kind of a gun archery guy. So we had archery in the backyard and we shot pistols in the basement, but it was targets, right? And these were not the 
assault type weapons we see being used in so many shootings today. So I went to camp. I was, you know, I was really proud each summer when I came home with new NRA badges. It was just a point of pride and something I really loved to do. And then also kind of building on that was on my high school riflery team. You know, in Scarsdale High School, I'm sure there's not one anymore, but I could do that and at the same time demonstrate against the Vietnam War because guns really, in my mind at that time, and I think in society's mind, weren't associated with violence towards other human beings, at least. They were sport. They were a hobby, you know, like canoeing. I mean, it started to change a little when we were in second grade. And JFK got blown away by a rifle, and Abe Lincoln had been shot. So maybe we had suppressed it a little bit. But then when we were in middle school, they called them junior highs here. Then you and I got to experience the RFK and MLK blown away by firearms. So it's definitely something our class of 74 knows a lot about, right? Yeah, it is something that we knew existed, but existed in very rarefied circumstances that we knew of, you know, horrific circumstances. But again, single shots, prominent people. Right. John Lennon and your fair city. And, yeah. And then Ronald Reagan, right where you live now right. in Washington, right. shot by a deranged guy from Colorado. Keep going. Yes. So we do have a history of shooting in our country, which, of course, if you took away the guns, you wouldn't have that history. But we do have the Second Amendment. But I think there was some kind of sea change in guns and what they meant. When I worked in the emergency room, which is in the 1990s still, I was the ER attending for a level one trauma center. So we did see gunshot wounds, but they were you know, small caliber, old fashioned gunshot wounds where, you know, I'm talking as a physician now and very clinically, but unless that bullet hit a vital organ, people didn't usually die. And I think the experience of ER doctors when they first start working in ERs is when you see ordinary gunshot wounds, they're really clean. You know, there's like a little entrance wound and a bigger exit wound slightly, but often you have to search pretty hard for them because they're not the kind of gore and gut that you see with some of the newer weapons. And sometime between then in the 1990s and now, we've become a gun culture where guns are not things of sport, not things of occasional assassinations, not things of little bullet wounds that you have to search for, but the goal of these guns is to literally blow people apart. And so what I said in my column, and I I do mean this, that when I look at assault weapons and see the damage that they cause, I feel like there's about as much connection between those assault weapons and the rifle I knew as between me and an amoeba. You know, it's just Mm. different machine, different purpose, different mindset. And it's kind of infused our language in ways that really upset me. You know, when we talk about a shooter, when you and I were kids, that would be like a guy who was good at basketball, right? Or something. Right. Or when we talk about 
oh, I want to take him out. That's about like going out for coffee, not about destroying him. I mean, weapons have become about destruction, our gun culture, and how that happened with the NRA and its influence. I really don't understand, but what I do understand now is that is the dominant force in gun culture. One statistic that really shocked me was in 1994, when the assault weapon ban expired, there were, I think, under 100,000 assault-type weapons in the U.S. Now there are literally over 20 million. And you know, as a former rifle owner and devotee, I really think like, what do you really need an assault type weapon before? And when I look at Capitol Hill, I'm like, really, is this so hard to do? I know there's all, you know, after the shootings in Denver and then in Atlanta, there was a call for we need new legislation and stricter gun laws. But it still seems like we're dimbling around the edges, doesn't it? It does. I'm all for that 1994 assault weapon ban coming back in. It sunsetted in 2004, and a lot of our problems began. I play golf. I know that the golf club manufacturers try to get you to buy the latest set every year. I understand that. They put out magazines. But this for-profit industry, Dr. Rosenthal, I get back to China is this what Lenin talked about that in the West, in America, they'll sell us the rope that we'll hang ourselves with? Is it capitalism run amok? You've been to China. They would never allow assault weapons there. I'm not saying China is better than us, but you describe it. You've been around the world. I haven't. Well, I mean, I wouldn't hold China up as a model because they wouldn't allow assault weapons there, but they also wouldn't allow the kind of discussion you and I are having right now, you know, where we are independent journalists who can say what we think of what the government is doing. We had this discussion in China and we would very likely get a visit from the police and probably be detained, as I was several times when I was a reporter in China. So I think for us, a better lesson is something like Australia, which at some point said, okay, enough of gun violence, we're going to take back guns. And, you know, Australia, it's a, a nation that was built mythically from penal prisoners from Britain. It's got very much that kind of outback cowboy culture as we do, you know, the independent spirits. But at some point they just said, this is too much. We're going to get all the guns out of the country. And mass shootings, killing in general, dropped dramatically, dramatically. So it's not like we can't look around the world and say, oh, if we're sick of hearing about these mass shootings with assault-type weapons, there's plenty of stuff we can do and that we know will work. But I think... Is it the NRA putting pressure on politicians that won't let them take anything more than baby steps? Is it that they have convinced the voters who like their guns that, you know, everything is a slippery slope, that you can't take away assault weapons without taking away your 22? Or is it that we've devolved into a culture where Violence is so normalized that, you know, we wring our hands when it happens and, you know, do the thoughts and prayers thing, but are just paralyzed 
to do anything about it. And I will say as a physician, this notion that I keep hearing, which is always the easy default, is to say guns are not the problem. People are, even from some of the people who are proposing this kind of low-level gun legislation, that you know we have to get better mental health treatment, which of course is true. We have to keep guns out of the hands of people who have mental health issues which of course is true. And of course, it's also true that part of me smiles in a weird way when I hear this, because as an ER doctor, I want to say, you know how you tell if people are violent, you say to them, have you contemplated killing yourself or someone else? And if they say no, it's not like we have some magnometer that detects violent tendencies. And I think that's part of why red flag laws which are when proposed and these are laws that would take guns away from people who are deemed to be at risk of harming themselves or others are often weak very procedural and much less effective than they could and should be as we've seen over and over again right we have a red flag law in colorado and it was quite a fight I'm glad you brought up Australia or we could look to Canada where gun crime is a lot less. Well, we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the mass murders. That doesn't work. And in the world, and you've been out there, increasingly our kids are mobile. They can work from anywhere. And I'm wondering, as people in Australia or Canada watch what's going on in the United States with mass murders, and America competes with China. I mean, it's not a great selling point for America. Again, I'd just like to draw on your expertise about China and the way systems work. China is horrible. I hate their totalitarian communism, but they are without a doubt accumulating a lot of wealth, and they are going to compete with America, and it's going to happen probably in our lifetimes and in our children's lifetimes how is it going to turn out? Uh, well, that's a big question, isn't it? I don't think anyone has a crystal ball on that. I do think the Biden administration is right in being a little harsher on China and saying, you know, hey, what we see is the genocide happening in Xinjiang of the Uyghurs and the kind of steamrolling of personal rights in Hong Kong, which were promised until 2050. And then while everyone was focused on COVID taken away basically overnight, you know, China should be held responsible for that. Well, their kind of governance and by fiat, which is really about business by fiat, it's making the place really business friendly because, hey, there's not going to be any violence, you know, but you have to partner with the Chinese government in your business and you have to tow their line as well. And some are willing to do that and some aren't. I mean, a bunch of news organizations have been kicked out because they weren't. So I think those are going to be the two centers of power in the future. And I feel like I know them both well. And they both have really serious issues as far as I'm concerned to deal with. I think if we're looking at the business aspects in some ways, Weirdly, it's not the violence, but the health care that keeps people out of the U.S. Because I'll just give you a little example. My daughter worked for a Danish company for a number of years. And if they had employees in Denmark, their health insurance was covered. If they sent them to the U.S., 
right? Or they based them in the U.S., which some were. They had to pay tens of thousands right. of dollars in healthcare costs and risk that an employee would get really sick, and then they'd end up with could end up with a million dollar bill. You know, and it was part of the Trump narrative. It's part of the Biden narrative. We want to encourage entrepreneurship. We want to encourage small companies. But when you talk to entrepreneurs, their A number one complaint is, I want to give my employees health insurance, but I can't afford it in this country. So uh, I think that is a major stumbling block to encouraging innovation and entrepreneurship here. And we really need to solve that. Great analysis. And eventually we either fix it or we fall behind, right? I think so. I think so. We are pretty good at staying smart. I mean, Chinese students still want to come to our universities. I will say that my husband is from Europe. He's Italian, half Slovenian, half Italian. Many of our friends from that part of the world did not want to come to the United States during the Trump years. They are put off by the amount of gun violence they see, particularly the violence by the police towards black and brown Americans. And they are very worried that they'll get sick while they're visiting here and not be able to afford the bills. You know, what if I get in a bike accident? Not worth it. they, They say, you know, you know, we'd love to see you, but when COVID is over, why don't you come here? That resistance is changing a bit now that the Biden administration is in play and there's more of an, a sense that we are, you know, we want to be back in a global order, but we're still such outliers when it comes to both guns and healthcare. And you asked before about the politicization of those two issues. Right. And the environment, it's all of a piece, you know. Yeah, I used to wonder, like, you know, climate change, guns, healthcare, like, those three things have nothing in common. Why are those always lumped together in belief systems? They're all things that are not really political, but have become intensely politicized. And that's a problem because the solutions are really rational and there are solutions for all three, but they're governed by science and brave policy, not by lies, mistruths, half-truths. And yes, very much so. It was the climate deniers. There's a great overlap between climate denialism and COVID vaccine resistance. Right. And it's amazing how the people who love many assault weapons also hate masks or public health mandates. They're experts on all the things, but they take their lead from Donald Trump and the authoritarian personality and the impulse in Americans and humans to go in that direction. It's really disturbing. And I so appreciate the conversation with you. I've learned a lot. Is it the fault of the baby boomers? I don't know about you, but (laughs) some of your nieces or nephews or God forbid your own children look at you and say, you guys screwed up the world, did we? I mean, my kids don't blame me, but, you know, they see that, um, as you said, I, I stopped being a doctor where I could have made a lot more money and do this work where, you know, it's just what I feel. It's kind of driven by passion. And I agree with my kids that like, yeah, we screwed up the climate stuff. Yeah, we screwed up the healthcare system. Yeah, we screwed up guns. But now we're trying, you know, 
someone who's beyond a boomer, Joe Biden is trying to fix those things. And, you know, I hope in my time we'll see some reversal. I think it remains to be seen. I mean, it was very distressing for people, I think, to see even I think it was just last week or the week before Representative Jim Jordan still trying to take down Dr. Fauci about masks and vaccinations, like to say, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you know, throughout the pandemic, with all the misinformation that was coming out, Tony Fauci was, to me, the gold star. I even did a, it was like a webinar or a column for the New York Times, I think was called, What Would Tony Do? Because whatever he said he was doing, when he was wiping down packages, I was wiping down packages. Once he got a vaccine, I'd get a vaccine. You know, if he said you should quarantine for 10 days instead of 14 now, I was like, okay, you know, we can go out. So I think to see people like Representative Jordan still trying to dismiss his expertise is very distressing. But I do think, you know, those voices are fewer now and don't have the platform they did in the previous administration. And so I think the big question over the next year will be, will they fade out? And will we try and get to a more rational place? I hope so, because I think getting a vaccine, putting on a mask, wanting lower carbon emissions, wanting there to be fewer assault guns, these are not inherently political decisions. They're they're basically just kind of science, even assault weapons. You don't want so many people to die. If you're shot with the old-fashioned weapon, you probably won't. If you're shot with an assault weapon, a whole bunch of people will, and we've seen that again and again and again. And frankly, in the emergency room, we do disaster. We did disaster drills all the time for what to do if a car crash came in or if a, um, someone who'd been shot came in. This was in the 90s. They never anticipated, you know, 10 people with massive bodily injuries from an assault weapon. It just was unthinkable, almost as unthinkable as, you know, planes crashing into the Twin Towers. And then Columbine happened. But you know what else happened? And again, I'd like to be associated with you. You grew up uh, the daughter of a, a doctor. I grew up the son of a lawyer. And I think our generation, if I can be so bold, you know, we're coming after the greatest generation and we have some privileges and an ability to get an education and whatnot. But between you and me and a lot of people like us, we do like to express ourselves. And to the degree we've screwed up, well, we're talking about it, right? Just like you tell your kids, hey, I could have been a doctor and maybe we could have joined several more country clubs or whatever, but <laughs> I, I want to express myself and see if I can make a difference in this world. And God love you, you're still trying. What's next for you, another book? Well, I don't know. I think, you know, at Kaiser Health News, I'll do a little plugging for what we, we've been doing. We did a, an amazing project that just ended called Lost on the Frontline, where we took it on ourselves because the government, the Trump administration at the time was not counting. We took count of the more than 3,600 deaths of frontline healthcare workers from COVID. 
many, if not most of them, didn't have to die if we'd responded to this pandemic better. We're doing a podcast this weekend, little teaser with This American Life about the attacks that public health officials came under from right-wing groups when they were just trying to tell people, you know, it's not safe to reopen yet, or you need to wear a mask. Really vile attacks. So I think for our generation, things were pretty good and easy. So we got kind of complacent, assuming that because the world was good for us, it would just continue to be good. And it didn't turn out that way, right? And now we we better do something about it while we still have some time. Right. And Kaiser Health News, is that the best place to find your work? Yeah, well, you can find our newsroom, Kaiser Health News. We have 60 reporters and editors around the country that report on many of these issues, including, you know, gun violence, public health, COVID, HIV, AIDS, all of those things. And then I also write an op-ed column for the New York Times, which also appears on Kaiser Health News, which is khn.org. So you can see all of the stuff there. You are so accomplished. You've been so generous with your time. Keep it up. Now, this is important stuff, you know, really important for all of us as a society, particularly right now as we're hopefully coming out of pandemic, the notion that getting vaccinated, following appropriate precautions for a couple of more months, maybe a little longer are needed. That's not about politics. It's about getting us back to a healthy American existence. So, And you see, as a lawyer, I evaluate your credibility as excellent because you're not beholden to industry or anybody else. You call it the way you see it. And I so appreciate it, Dr. Rosenthal. Thank you very much for spending the time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a privilege to talk about these things. Bye now. Bye. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Troubadour, my troubadour, I'm a little worried about you. Tell me. I get a text from you asking me to go on a walk. Normally that would be fine, but when I got it, I was playing golf in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on the back nine at the University of New Mexico Championship course. I thought I told you that. Bless your heart. I'm so glad you had time to, they call it self-care when you take off on a road trip by yourself. Now, it wasn't just a road trip. It was strategically planned to beat the snowstorm. I am sick of the snow. 
I had to work hard on a legal brief on Sunday. I spent all day writing it, shared it with my colleagues for their edits while they were editing it. On Monday, I did some more work. And then I got in my vehicle and I headed south down I-25 trying to beat the storm. I was told it was going to be 70 degrees in Albuquerque while it was snowing like crazy here. So I thought I could make a run for it. You know what happened? It was snowing in Albuquerque? No, it was all going good until Colorado Springs. Too much traffic in Colorado Springs. That delayed me a little bit. But I got to Trinidad just in time to find wireless, which is hard in downtown Trinidad. You know why? Because there really isn't a downtown Trinidad. But then I found a hotel and I borrowed their wireless and I did the final edits on the brief. I got down my sports wagering because you can't bet once you're in New Mexico. I bet on the Nuggets and I bet Nikola Jokic to have a big game. And then I drove to Raton and it was seven o'clock. I said, ooh, the Nuggets are starting. I found a hotel. I watched my Nuggets. The Joker had 47. I don't know if you heard about that game, but then Ratona woke up, it was snowing. It was like Colorado, only it wasn't sticking to the ground. It was about 30 degrees. I didn't care. I put on my golf clothes and I hot-tailed it to Albuquerque and I watched the thermometer go from 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 to 70. And then I got to the course. I said, can I play today? They said, sure. You got about an hour. Went, checked in. Everybody said, you better put your stuff in your room because there are vehicle break-ins. I didn't know about Breaking Bad. I hadn't put that together with Albuquerque until I got home. Anyway, I played golf. I got your text message. The only problem is I was wearing shorts and just a golf shirt. And what started at 70, the weather kind of chased me first with about 20-mile-an-hour winds, then 30-mile-an-hour winds, then about 45-mile-an-hour winds. And it was about 50 degrees, and I was a little chilly toward the end of the round. But I got up the next day, rode my bike a little bit, came back to Colorado, and here I am. Well, welcome home. And I'm envious that you took that time. A little adventure for yourself. It was. And I had not spent a lot of time in Albuquerque. I'm not sure I will again, but I always wanted to play that course. And even on a windy day, it's an interesting, amazing place. But... Does Albuquerque play out in Breaking Bad quite a bit? That's yeah. where it's at. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How yeah. so? Just because it's kind of a desert or barren? Well, it's just always, I mean, it's 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 the landscape that this whole thing, you know, that the whole story takes place in. And so it's kind of crucial to the whole story because a lot of these illicit transactions take place kind of out, out of town in these you know, in no man's land, they, they take they take a, a dirt road out right. a couple miles and, and nobody's around. They can do whatever they want. And they do. It is amazing how wide open it is, even off of I-25 as you drive south. I hadn't done that for quite a while, but it's good to be home and to get your song, Way of Forgetting. What inspired that song, David Cunders, as we talk about you forgetting that I was leaving town? I told you that. You just didn't believe me, right? Well, right. I didn't quite believe you. I didn't know that, you know, I should have known. When you say you're thinking of taking a road trip, you're almost gone. 
But, you know, you can work from anywhere, at least yeah. what I do, unless I have a court appearance. And even that, you're doing it remotely. So all you need is your laptop. And I can sit in a hotel room and work just as well as I can in my home office or my downtown office. It's an interesting time to be alive. So this song, I have to tell you that I'm still remembering the Boulder 10. And that's why that title, Way of Forgetting, struck me because life moves on. Everybody's talking about the Derek Chauvin trial. Then that girl got shot in Ohio. And we're on to the latest shooting, the latest this or that. And we forget about Boulder. You go up to Boulder all the time to make music. Do you think about it now as much as you did a couple of weeks ago? Or do you think it's just going to fade into the background? No, I hate to say that it would fade, but um, no, I don't think about it as much as I did. Right, but you know who does? The people who of lost a child. Right. Gosh, the worst possible thing that could happen. We both have our beloved children, and we won't even let our minds go there. No. Yet your song, to me, maybe it was about two lovers, a breakup, but to me it was more about maybe parents losing a child. And was that in your mind when you wrote it? The song's about loss, and I don't really know exactly what was in my mind but but uh it was certainly about someone dealing with with loss but in um not necessarily in a healthy way he's his strategy you realize is 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 futile i don't know to me you would say in my dream you still run like a child at play and then i tried to bury you was that a metaphor or did literally right a metaphor he's trying he's trying to put the memories He's trying to put the memories out of his head, but he's not really succeeding. He's drawing the curtains closed. He doesn't want the light to come in. You, you realize that it's, it's, he has a lot of reckoning to do. I think it's a companion piece to your song, Revelation Town. When we first heard about the Boulder Massacre, that song seemed to fit. I feel so bad for the people who go on with the pain of losing a child. You can't go there, but with music... And even if you, God forbid, have to experience great loss like that, you know what? Life goes on. And I like the tone you take. You can take that whimsical tone. You know what I call your tone in this song? Plaintive. You're pleading like, I'm dealing with some pain here. And how are we going to do that? What's the right way of forgetting? And it's got all the classic Dave Gunders elements. You know what those are, don't you? Well, you always mention that. I don't think the moon or the sun were, or the stars are in this one. Uh, the, the sun that is setting. You oh, there you that go. With your way of forgetting. You got and, me. And you got a fire in there. That's yeah. an elemental thing. But you got a skin that I'm shedding. I know you were looking for rhymes for a way of forgetting. <laughs> right. And you got them all, but skin that I'm shedding. Right. That's, you know, you got to shed that skin and recreate yourself right. after loss over and over. And I just think it's a beautiful song. Thank you, Craig. Everybody give a listen. Way of Forgetting by Dave Gunders, our troubadour. Try to bury you Cause 
I don't want it There's a fire that's still burning In my dream you still run Like a child at play Feel you near, keep you here Stay with me all day And then I wake up To the sun that is setting It's been almost 40 years that I've been a lawyer, graduated CU Law in 1981, and began immediately. I am now with the law firm of Springer and Steinberg. Jeff Springer, a renowned civil attorney, one of the best in America. Harvey Steinberg, preeminent criminal defense attorney. We do it all at Springer and Steinberg, way over a dozen lawyers, 
If you need legal help, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig. We can deal with your legal situation and make it better. Thank you. If I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kid's education, my grandchild's education? And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways and not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he's, how much he's worth now. You know, a lot. Well, let's say he's got $2 billion, and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's going to be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes, but if you're charitably inclined, certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael, and I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done and they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hey, welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. One of the most interesting people in Colorado. He happens to be an attorney. I've known him for decades. Peter Schaefer, welcome back. Well, thank you so much for having me, Craig. And if you've known me for decades, it means you knew me when I was a really young boy. No, I'm thinking about it. We're in the uh, 2020s now, am I right? Yes. And when did you get to Colorado? 1987. Okay. I'm sure I knew you in the 2000s, definitely in the 2010s. So. Well, no, we knew each other in the 90s when you were an ADA and I was representing some people in criminal to pay for my sports business. Four decades, Peter Schaefer. But I've gotten to know a lot more about you, and I'd have to say, somebody said, well, what do you know about Peter Schaefer? Great sports agent, an attorney, a jock, an athlete, a competitor. 
But more than anything, a great family man. We are going to get into all of those things, Peter Schaefer, but it's that NFL draft time of year, and nobody I know has quite the expertise you do. You've represented a lot of big-time NFL players. Does the draft excite you? Tell us about the Broncos, your perspectives on the whole thing, and the way the NFL has been able to merchandise just the process of the draft. Well, you know, to me, being a part of the draft is, is always fun because you know that there's so many people in the country that watch this event, and it's like the greatest sports event where there's no scoreboard. There's no wins or losses. Nobody's actually competing. And yet you make it into this great event, and it is interesting. I remember, Craig, one of my first drafts, it wasn't on ESPN other than the first round, and so we would actually have to call our friends at Channel 7 or Channel 9, and they would read us the AP wire. You know, this player was taken in the fifth round. This, that's how we found out back then. Now everything's in real time. Now everything's on your smartphone. To be around Peter Schaefer is to see his smartphone go off constantly. I bet it has about five or ten times just since we started this interview. And thank you for ignoring that. But you are literally like a Jerry Maguire or any of those guys. Was he a role model of yours? My role model would have been a, a guy named Bob Wolf, who was one of the pioneers in the business. And he represented my hero growing up, Joe Namath. That's because you grew up back east. What a quarterback. So you were a Jets fan. I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, Cortland. And, you know, how could you not love a guy who, who said that I like my women blonde and my Johnny Walker red? What about Johnny Walker black? That's not a bad liquor. Yeah, I don't know if, yeah, back then, I don't know. I don't know if there was as many colors because, you know, now Johnny Walker blue is pretty good. Too, right. So. But then you might be you know, considered pro-police and the politics of blue versus black. We're going to get into all of that. But how did you break into being a big sports agent? Was that what you set upon doing? You were a pro athlete. Brag on that. Then you went to law school. Did you know you were going to be a pro agent? Was that the goal? Well, first, I don't know if I'm a big agent. You know, I just consider myself a small town lawyer from a small town in upstate New York. But I went to law school after college, and I got hired by a litigation firm here in town in Denver. So I moved out from back east, had offers from other cities and firms, and figured, you know, 23 years old and a law degree, Denver's a pretty cool place to live. And then about a year into it, I decided that let's go out there and see if we can get into the sports business. And, you know, we started out by representing eighth-round draft choices and free agents Two CU players, Eric Norgard and David Tate, who played for the Buffs in the uh, late 80s. And, you know, things we got very fortunate that they had great careers and, and they were great people and we were able to do great work for them. Now, when you say you do great work for them, is it, you know, I handle personal injury cases and I sincerely believe that if somebody hires me, I can get them a better result than they could on their own, even after you deduct my fees. Is that a similar concept when it comes to being a sports agent? Well, no. And I've done a personal injury in others. You don't have the same relationship with the client. You know, in our business, you know, we're sort of cradle to grave. And I believe that it's my job not just to represent them in legal matters and contracts, but to help them deal with all kinds of issues, to help them become better people, 
to help them become better players, better fathers, better mothers, better spouses, to deal with a lot of, you know, family issues, business issues. You know, we're, we're 24-7. I don't know if I've taken a true vacation, including my honeymoon, in the 30-odd years that I've been an agent. Let's just accelerate your career. David Tate, didn't he play a long time for the Bears? Yes, the Bears. He was actually recruited by Bobby Knight to play basketball at Indiana. He had a great career, but let's get right to the big names. Barry Sanders, Joe Thomas. How did you move up that fast to represent people of that caliber? Well, obviously my incredible good looks and charm. I've seen you, Peter. It ain't that. Oh, oh. Well, no, I think that the reality is that having a law degree, there are three really facets, Greg, of being a sports agent. One, you have to be able to get the clients. Two, you have to be able to do the work for the clients. And then three, you have to be able to maintain the clients because it's a very competitive industry. People are trying to steal your clients every day. And so to be able to get a Barry Sanders is great, but a lot of people have gotten great players and they haven't succeeded. Ricky Williams went with Master P, and it was going to be the big thing. And he did a bad contract, and next thing you know, they're out of the business. And so those three tenants are really important. Get the client, do good work for the client, maintain the client. And so Sanders then led to Jerome Bettis, and Jerome Bettis led to Eddie George, and Eddie George led to – you know, Mike Rucker and, and a bunch of other, you know, Alfred Williams and, you know, throw Steve Atwater in there and Mark Jackson. And, you know, it continued to grow upon itself. But every day you have to just keep those three tenants in mind. Now, is part of it, it's got to be the relationship. They've got to like to talk to you and you're dealing with jocks. And I would say that more than anything, you are a jock. Am I right? Well, I played lacrosse in college, and then I played one year professional lacrosse. And I like to think I'm a good athlete, and I can work out with my players. And I will tell you this one time. I remember I was working out with a couple of guys. It might have been Jerome and those guys or whatever. And we're doing gassers, which is 50 yards across, 50 yards across, 50 yards across, 50 yards across. And I was with them that first 50. I'm like, shit, I am a good athlete. We stopped. You know, you sort of stop at the 50 to turn the other direction. I'm like, where the hell did they go? The explosiveness of these athletes, I might consider to be a jock, but these guys are oh, such an elite level. But, but it's, it's the attitude that I'm talking about. I'm not saying you're a world-class athlete like these guys you're mentioning, but there's a competitiveness. There's a jock mentality, and that's what I love about sports, getting lost in it back in the day when I competed. And you see it. I see it every night on my TV, especially in fast-moving games like basketball or football. People just get lost in the competition, and I love that. And don't you? Isn't that kind of a similar thing that those guys can sense your respect for that? And they, I'm sure I never watched you play lacrosse, but I bet you got so into it, and now you're coaching it. It's all about competition, isn't it? Craig, we have an expression when we play lacrosse, and it says, down by four, start a war. <laughs> if you're going to play us, it's going to be 60 minutes. You better be ready for the smoke because it's coming right at you, and it's going to hit you. And that's, you know, and that's right. And you know, I think that part of the reason I am still work out at my advanced age is because I still play lacrosse, and I know that I want to 
play at a high level, in order to play at a high level, you got to be in shape, and it motivates you to work out and lift weights. And but I also think that if I'm going to tell my athletes that you know you need to work out, you need to be in shape, that if you're going to talk to talk, you have to walk to walk. See, when you talk about your athletes now, we'll advance their story. You're coaching South High Lacrosse team. That's exciting. We're going to get to it. When you talk about my athletes, are you talking about those players who you are coaching or the guys who you're their players agent? Those are your athletes. They're all the same. You know, the reason I truly love what I do in terms of both being an agent and coaching my son lacrosse team at South High with Paul Mahoney, who's another lawyer, is that we can change lives and we can show them you know, that use athletics to get a great education, use athletics to learn teamwork, use athletics to learn sacrifice. That, you know, if you want to be great, you better work hard. And, you know, the expression that we have, Craig, is we, we don't look for easy. And, and that's the deal. We're not looking for the easy way. Now that's great. And God knows you've faced your challenges, but it seems to me that when you say it's the same thing, being a coach, being a player's agent, I think I understand it. Irv Brown was a great coach. I know you probably met and interacted with Irv Brown, but he was coached the best. by Yeah, he was coached the by best. my father in Denver. And I watched him on late night TV. I've told this story too often, but there he was being interviewed just like I'm interviewing Peter Schaefer, who is your greatest influence as a coach. And he'd say, Well, you know, I played for four Hall of Famers, this and that, but Shelly Silverman on the West Side. And I was so flabbergasted. I knew they had a good relationship. And I knew my dad coached before he became a lawyer. And I know he coached me. But I went to Irv Brown, we said, at a Rockies game one day. And I said, what was it about my father? And he said, he could motivate people. And I'd have to figure that's your job. Draft day, somebody who thinks they're going in the first round, they get picked in the third and you're the agent, you got to motivate them. You got to pick them up off the mat. Am I right? Isn't that a huge part of your job? Well, I don't know if it's just the draft. You know, the one thing about the tripod or the pyramid of, of athletics is every level you go to, you know, you're getting closer and closer and less people. And all the players that play in college were their best players in high school. Right. And, of course, all the people that play in the pros were the best players in college. And so – Success and failure at the professional levels, it's a very thin thin line between who's going to succeed and who's going to fail. And so some great players fail, you know, to begin with, and then they succeed. You know, I represent a guy named Ronnie Bradford, and Ronnie went to Commerce City, played at the University of Colorado, got drafted in the fourth round by, I think, the Broncos, and Shanahan played him at safety, cut him. And he went on to play 10 years as starting corner for the Cardinals and the Falcons in the Super Bowl. And Michael tell you today, it was his, the dumbest thing he ever did. He, but he had to pick himself up. You know, my daughter rides horses. You get knocked off the horse, you got to get back on it. And, you know, Ronnie did. And I can tell you this right now, of all the players, over 100, you know, a couple hundred players, only one of two of those players never got cut. And they're One's in Canton, the other will be in Canton. And I've got three other guys that are in Canton, and they were cut. Right. And you have to learn to deal with disappointment in sports. You represent some golfers, Johnny Cage, Shane Birch, who's been a guest on the show. What a great guy. But golf's all about disappointment. 
Only one team wins the Super Bowl. The Nuggets have never even gotten to the NBA Finals. So there's disappointment. You get cut. Is it an old hat for you? Do you pull out the same speech every time, or is it different for every athlete? Well, no, it is different because there's some players that do get released, and it's over for them, okay? And there are a lot of others, that, like a Ronnie Bradford, who get released and it's like, no, Ronnie, it's just this was, you know, this just wasn't the right situation. And so you do have to understand the difference and be able to sit there and say, it is time to move on. Because giving up the life of a professional athlete is not easy. It's a hard life. It's a very physically demanding life. But there are a lot of perks to it. And it's almost into it of itself a narcotic. And to wean the person off that, when it's time to go, it's time to go. And there's some guys like, you know, they just think they can go on. And, you know, Father Time has no friends. And it, it doesn't discriminate. Yeah, like your hero, Joe Willie Namath. He stuck around a little too long, but he's okay. He's doing a lot of commercials now. But are you telling me you knew about Ronnie Bradford? Are you always right? I mean, are you that good of a talent sizer upper? <laughs> no, I just knew Ronnie had all the intangibles, hardworking, humble, smart, football IQ, athletic. I just knew, did I know he'd play 10 years? I don't know. No. You know it's funny because I think it was 27 years ago today that Jerome Bettis got traded from the Rams to the Steelers. And, you know, I was sort of integral in that. That deal, talking to the Steelers, like, you know, like, really, you think he'll do well? Da, 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 da. You know, things like that changed the fortunes of a, a city and changed the fortunes of a player. And that's the exciting part, is to be part of that type of situation. You're giving me goosebumps talking about the bus. Is he as good a guy as he seems to be? Uh, no, no, no. He is much better. Really? The best. You're not going to find a better person than Jerome. He, he remembers everybody's name. He makes everybody feel that they're loved. He makes everybody feel that they're his best friend. You know, I remember 10 years ago, I got a call from a friend of mine, and he said, Peter, and Jerome would come out here when he was playing, and we were playing lacrosse, and he'd always go to the games. He'd pick up a stick. And one of my teammates in men's club lacrosse ran into him at the O'Hare Airport, you know, all those the crazy lights. Mm -hmm. And he says, hey, Jerome, remember me? Lacrosse with you with Peter back in Denver. And Jerome st stopped and had a 10-minute conversation with the guy. Wow. And said, of course I did. And, and my buddy could not have been more like, wow, you know, this is a one-time meeting 10 years ago. But Jerome just has a way to make everybody feel special, everybody feel important. And that's just an unbelievable quality. You've had some special running backs. I also always got a kick out of you keeping a foot in the legal world because you do some personal entry, you do some criminal defense. Not long ago, you were representing Joe Mixon out of Oklahoma and a tape was circulating about him hitting a woman at the University of Oklahoma. You did a good job vouching for the guy and wow, he's proved himself to be a great NFL player. I just thought you put a lot of skills on display. You can take a bow and tell us about that situation from your perspective. Well, more importantly, Joe is a good person. He really is. And he'll, he'll stay at the house. He was here this week. 
just likes to work out, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't party, doesn't go to nightclubs. And he had a you know bad night as an 18-year-old when somebody called him the N-word in, in Oklahoma, his first weekend in Oklahoma. There are certain people that do bad things, and they should suffer the rest of their lives for it because, you know, the police officer in, in Minnesota. But there's some people that are in a bad situation, and they deserve a second chance. And life is all about a second chance, but should never be given. It has to be earned. And Joe's earned every of it. Well, that's good to know. And it's interesting because the case was just decided today. We're talking on Thursday, late night, because if you want Peter, you got to talk late at night. And I respect that. And we're getting a lot of cool stories out of him. That's for sure. But this case has to do with sentencing of juveniles, 18-year-olds and below. Lord knows I was involved in a lot of those prosecutions. And it's tough to know what to do. And they talk about underdeveloped brains. And really, kids don't become men till about 25 that your synapses all kick in. So how do you punish juveniles, et cetera? I've been thinking about that a lot. Even you bring up the conviction of the officer Chauvin in Minnesota. Now he faces up to 40 years. The whole concept of jail, I had Bruce Brown on last week. And Bruce Brown, who was creative DA up in the mountains, said, we've got to rethink prisons. Because even with Chauvin, after he, you know, how much is enough time? Does it have to be the 40 years? Or Joe Mixon, did he have to go to jail? Is that really productive? I mean, have you thought about these things, Peter? I, I know you have. Is our criminal justice system working? And does jail and prison work? No. You know, there's certain situations where people have, I believe, and it's just me, I am not the civil libertarian that you are. I, I love constitutional law. I love living in a democracy, but there are certain times that people have given up their rights to be a citizen. But at the same time, you know, you think about, you know, like in, in, in the officer's case, what really bothered me, you know, obviously, I mean, just the, the fact that you could do that to another human being is just something I can't even think of. But then the icing on the cake to me is his lack of remorse, his lack of expression, you know, watching that case and seeing that they really had no defense, I would have put him on the stand and, and at least let him apologize or do whatever and ask for mercy and say he'll spend the rest of his life making up for it, teaching people that this is wrong, but nothing. So whatever he did that day, which was just unbelievably incomprehensible to me, the fact that he didn't make amends for it or try to make amends for it, or ask for forgiveness, you know, just showed me what kind of person he is. And people like that, though, until they do, they don't deserve the rights of a free man. But if he does, and he can show remorse, and he can show he's rehabilitated, then, you know, second chances do come. But until that time, you know, you have to earn it. It's not given. In Joe Mixon's case, he's earned every bit of it. Right. I don't equate the two. I mean, it was an impulse thing by Mixon, and what he did was wrong, and he paid quite a price for it. You know, I don't even know if it was wrong, though, because he's sitting in a, in a restaurant, and someone yells the N-word and jumps at him. You know, his reaction was to defend himself, and it's easy for you and I, as you know, growing up as white people, to think that, okay, I'm not in trouble. 
but you know you hear the n-word with a southern oklahoma twang and you know you you have to give at least in his mind thinking okay what's this guy is he coming with a gun is he coming with this is all that other stuff and does he have the right to defend himself Right, but it was a woman who got hit. How did she get hit? Was she involved in using the N-word? He didn't know. He thinks it was her. I mean, that's how fast and quick it was. He thought it was her. And he really didn't see it was a female or male. It just was somebody, and she was, you know, the size of a male, and came at him. She, he, he didn't know it was a female or male at the time. He just knew someone was coming at him and it had just used the N-word at him. Remind me, did he get prosecuted? There was a deferred judgment situation so in that case i don't believe what he did was wrong but in our society you know but he hit a woman but at the time he didn't know he did not know if it was a male or female he didn't he just knew someone used the n-word at him and he was in a restaurant with 95 percent white and again in our society nobody should ever hit anybody we live in the most advanced society in the world but the reality is it's easy for us to say that because we don't fear someone's going to come up and try to hit us or kill us because of how we look. Let's talk about race. But before we do, I hear a little of the lacrosse competitor in you, Chauvin. Forget about him. He is sociopathic. He reacted the way a lot of burners do, expressionless, just like when he had his knee down on that guy. I just don't know if after he serves 10 years, is he really a danger to society when he gets out? He's, he's got no following. And so what is appropriate? If it's too little, then people take the law into their own hands. Just interesting to me to hear a lot of people who are for reform of prison saying this guy's got to be locked up for the rest of his life. And maybe he will be. And maybe that's appropriate. We'll find out in a little bit. I think about those things. But like you, I'm a lawyer what about his attorney, Eric Nelson? Did he do a good job, or was that guy just a weak willy who didn't really put up much of a fight? I don't know if he had a lot to fight with. And the reality is the prosecution team was a team of Minnesota All-Stars, and it was you know five to one. I don't think that you or I or Clarence Darrow could have gotten him off. But we would have gone down swinging and maybe put him on. I was thinking, what if Johnny Cochran was his lawyer? Could Johnny have gotten a hung jury? I don't know. I would have put him on, for sure. Right, that's what I'm talking about. You know you're going to lose if you don't. So you say to the guy, hey, get on there and tell him how you have a hard job. You wanted to go home that day, how the guy fought you. You didn't realize you were killing him. You're sorry. I don't think so. I think that he knew what he was doing, and it was wrong. And I think that when you watch his face, his reaction at the time and there, that he has the bully mentality of the white cop in that situation with a little remorse that, you know, he doesn't feel that George Floyd was worthy of the same deference was wrong. And that attitude has to stop in our society. It has to stop. And I don't think he could have said that and make excuses. I think he could have said, I, I, I was wrong. I need to change. Society needs to change. And it's got to start now. That's what I would have said, told him to say. And whether he could have done it, I don't know. Because I just think that he, it's so ingrained in officers like that, that that's the problem. And that's why we do need to have change in our system. Because police are supposed to save people, protect people. And when you call the police, you're supposed to be, God, I'm safe now. 
Here's what I think happened. One, I think he knew George Floyd from that bar they both worked at, and probably George Floyd had sized up Chauvin as bad guy and vice versa, and this was an opportunity. Also, George Floyd had been in and out of trouble, and this veteran cop knew that for a $20 counterfeit bill, he was not going to be locked up, and there would be no real consequence, even though he fought the cops getting in the back. So he was going to inflict some street justice. So ironically, again, here's a guy who's thinking this guy's not going to suffer enough jail time over this charge. I'm going to inflict some street justice. And now we're talking about his sentence coming up. That's what I think probably happened. Correct. And the reality is, thank God for cell phones, because think about what happened in Mississippi and the Alabamas in the 1950s and 60s. I guarantee you there are a lot of George Floyds that are dead and buried and, and never to be found again, and no justice was done for them, and much worse. And thankfully now we do, everybody has cell phones with videos so that we can create justice, but more importantly, create situations where people will learn that this is just inappropriate behavior in the most advanced society you know, on the face of the planet. It just, the idea that anybody should be now, the greatest line of a speech is, you know, let's judge people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And when we get to a point where Martin Luther King is right, then we're going to be in a much better place in our society. You brought it up, race. I do think it was probably a factor, even though the prosecution did not inject it. It's the unspoken text. You've been around a lot of prominent African-American athletes. You've thought about this, Peter Schaefer. Plus, I think you have the perspective of being an East Coast guy, and I think Denver, maybe it's different, maybe it isn't, but I felt like there was a little more racism back East, my little experience there. I'll shut up and just tell me, where are we at in America when it comes to race right now? I think every day we get better, but a few days ago was Jackie Robinson Day. Mm-hmm. And we celebrated that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball in 1947, I think. And it just makes me squirm or, or just feel uncomfortable that there was ever a color barrier. Why, why would that ever be that there was a color barrier? I mean, just how archaic and how deplorable of a concept that there was a color barrier in sports or in business or whatever. There's a gender barrier. People ask me all the time if I'm prejudiced. I say, absolutely. I do not like bad people. You know, I don't care if you're white, black, male, female, tall, short. If you're a good person, you're, you're my friend. If you're a bad person, I have no time for you. So, yeah, I'm prejudiced against bad people. And they come in all shapes and sizes. But that's how people should be determined, by the content of their character. And the fact that we had a color barrier in our parents, you know, your father, my father's lifetime is just hard to even fathom. It is. And then it isn't. Could you think about slavery? Think about Jackie Robinson's family fleeing the South for a better opportunity in, in California and then in the military where he still suffered some discrimination. As much as we've made progress and as much progress that needs to be made with black Americans and clearly the people of Asian heritage that are being discriminated against now, people forget the Native Americans. I mean, we all came to this land, and Native Americans 
this was their land and they're so discriminated against right now and the stereotypes are just unbelievable the difference is they're just such genuinely humble human beings that they just sit there and they never complain because they're just the greatest human beings ever put on the face of the planet and yet every day i'm dealing with a case right now at a university where there's discrimination going against a native american and it's deplorable do you think it's white supremacy that's a term that I thought, wow, that's not a huge problem in America, but now I think it is. And I think our racial divisions, you say they get better all the time. Maybe now that Trump's out of office, but he's still around and Trumpism is still ascendant in the Republican Party. And to me, nobody stoked racism more than that guy. The governors of Alabama and Mississippi in the 60s and 50s stoked racism at the Certainly the same level as he did. Right, but they weren't president. You're in the NFL big time. Looking back, what are people to make of the whole Kaepernick contretemps and the fact that Trump called him and others a son of a bitch kind of drew the battle lines, didn't he? He has set back our nation years in terms of just about every category you can imagine, from race to foreign policy, you know, the whole shoot match. And it really preyed upon people's fears as opposed to leading by people's successes. And when you get there, you know, a lot of people sit there and say, well, you know, I don't want to call it white supremacy. I call it white fearism or white being scared that someone else is going to get ahead of you because they're going to work as hard as you. Well, guess what? That's the score. You got to work hard. And every day it, it becomes harder and harder and harder. To me, the guy who sized him up the best was LeBron James, who's the de facto head of the sports world. And he may have screwed up bad with that Columbus, Ohio thing and his tweet. But LeBron James called Donald Trump a bum. And I think that sums it up beautifully. And he wasn't afraid to take him on. But then he didn't get too strident. And the athletes, when they went in the bubble in the NBA, they said, vote, 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 vote. And damned if people didn't vote. Athletes are leading, aren't they now? And what do you make of my comments about LeBron? Well, it is interesting that in our society, you know, America, we don't have royalty. You know, our royalty becomes our entertainers and our athletes. And for them to take advantage of the of their notoriety and their fame to advance social causes is important. And it's not just LeBron. It was Colin Kaepernick. And there are a lot of other players who do it subtly every day of the week. Okay, now LeBron obviously is the greatest star of our generation. And the fact that he's willing to stand up there, you know, it's fantastic because that's what has to happen. We need Vice President Harris. We need LeBron. We also, you know, we need everybody. You know, there, there are two ways, I believe, to make change. You legislate or you educate. And we're just so much better off when we educate because then people will do things because they want to, not because they're told to. Is it going too far? I mean, Drew Brees, did he say something terrible? Now we see Brett Favre. I don't know. Is sports becoming too political to their detriment? Is it hurting their ratings, the bottom line? But do they have to do it regardless? You know, like you just said, LeBron, you know, made comments about Columbus. 
you know, it's very easy to take words out of context or, or to be perfect every moment of every day. You know, Trump used to make fun of Biden because, you know, he sometimes had malaprops and misspoke or whatever. No one's perfect. And we judge people every day. And then that's crazy. But it really is the test of time. It's people who do it every day, try to be the good person, try to do things the right way that are going to make the difference. And the reality is that 99% of our society are not going to be famous and are not going to be multimillionaires, but they still deserve to have great lives. They still deserve to live the American dream. And the American dream isn't given, it's earned. And they should be able to earn it regardless of their sex, their sexual preference, or their religion, the color of their skin, or anything. And if you work hard, you should be able to get a chance, you know, to have a great life. And that's what, at the end of the day, matters. So that when the Native American Great Spirit Prayer, you know, ends by saying, so when life fades, it's fading sunset, may my spirit come to you without shame. And that's all that matters. It's like the Jewish expression, may your memory be for a blessing. You said there's no royalty in America, but he is King James. And just to flesh it out, the killing of this young girl named Bryant, Makai Bryant, she had a knife that she was thrusting at people. A cop shot her dead. I think the cop made a decision that was justified per law. He has right to protect people who are in imminent danger of being killed or suffering serious bodily injury. It was a tragedy. LeBron posted the cop's picture with the title, You're Next. And then he took the tweet down. I think he got worked up. Anybody can get worked up when you're talking about kids and death. It's an emotional subject. As you said, Peter, Nobody's perfect, even the great LeBron James. React to that, and then in your whole decades, many decades of doing this, have you ever seen one athlete quite that ascendant like LeBron James? Isn't he far and away the leader, not just in basketball, but a lot of sports? No, Muhammad Ali. I mean, Muhammad Ali was worldwide. Mm -hmm. He was the greatest because he was the greatest. Right, but he didn't have the love and respect of all the fellow athletes in his day. He couldn't have said, we're going to... see, yeah. You think he he did? did. Oh, Muhammad Ali, he was the greatest. And and, I mean, this guy, you know, they stripped his title because he wouldn't go to Vietnam. He had to go to the Supreme Court in order to be able to just work again. You know, I mean... And take nothing away from LeBron, and he is the king, and, and he's fantastic, and what he's done is great. But if if you were to tell me of all time, it's Muhammad Ali. All right, himself. but you you weren't working when Ali was the sentence because I wasn't working, and you're younger than me. So, in any event, what about the, the claim that I was? I remember down goes Frazier. Yeah, down and, goes and, you know, my Frazier. old man said, Craig. I know you like sports, but go to law school. You can do anything with the law degree. Look at Howard Cosell. You know, he was a lawyer. Did you oh, yeah. know that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm good friends with his son who works for NFL Films. Really? Oh, yeah. Howard Cosell was the greatest. His great line was, Craig, your grasp of the obvious is uncanny. <laughs> okay. Well, you know everybody. Oh, yeah. Rank the sports right now, the pro sports. I know lacrosse is number one, whatever. But when it comes to major sports, is there an up arrow or a down arrow for the NFL right now? Total up 
for NFL, total up for NBA, total up for the NHL, total up for the PLL, the Professional Cross League, you know, soccer. You know, to me, sports, you know, everybody in our country loves reality TV, but sports is the ultimate reality TV. I agree. I noticed you didn't put baseball in there. I grew up as a huge baseball fan, and it just has to be more exciting. It's just yeah. I, I, right. I just need more action. Absolutely. I mean, I watch it on either two or three speed forward. And then if you go to a game, it's like opening game. It was a decent game. But I'll tell you the way to make it exciting is to bet on every inning. How much is that going to change everything? The prevalence of sports wagering? What are the rules? Can players bet? Can they bet on themselves? Can they bet on others? Can they bet on other sports? What about sports agents? What's the rule? I don't know. I mean, the players can't bet. I don't bet. I think that sports betting is clearly motivates people to watch the games, which is good for the sports, the slippery slope. But it, it certainly makes it more exciting. It certainly makes people want to watch games longer. And even if the game's out of hand, there's still ways to make money. So yeah, I guess to that extent, it's great. But I'm just a purist, and I watch sports for the pure sake of sports. And I love the Olympics. You can bet on that, too. You know, you can bet on the draft now. You can bet who the Broncos are going to pick. Who are the Broncos going to pick? I think that, you know, George Payton is a fantastic person. He's going to do a great job as a general manager. And he's probably going to pick someone who's going to be so solid, it's not going to be sexy. And he might catch a little flack the first year because the pick is just not sexy. But... In three, four, five years, when people grade the draft, they're going to be like, hey, he did a good job. Shouldn't they trade with Atlanta, get that top pick, pick a QB? I mean, Drew Locke is so okay, but he's, he's just okay. It all depends on what they have to give up. George is not, you know, no one's going to overpay for that. Speaking of Atlanta, I wrote about this. I'm all in favor of Denver getting the all-star game from Atlanta. What about you before we leave baseball? To me, there's a straight line from Trump's big lie, the January 6th insurrection, the good old boys in Georgia changing the law to take power away from the people who held the line against Trump. And damn, I'm not going to go for that. Coca-Cola and Delta said no. And if Denver's there to pick up the pieces, I say, that's great. What about you? I think that the major people, you know, corporations have a lot of power in this country. They make a heck of a lot of money, and they should always do things the right way. There's never a substitute for doing things the right way. And the right way is to let people vote. Gosh, the people came through in Georgia. And I'm sorry that some Black-owned businesses are going to have to suffer, but along the way, That's what happens with discrimination. Some short-term pain for some long-term gain. That's my attitude. That's right. You always have to take a step backwards, take two steps forward, and and that's the deal. Let's talk about the most exciting drama going on in our city. It involves lacrosse. It is great sport. People run. They sweat. There's a risk of injury at all times. You got to be tough as hell. What is it about that sport that made you fall in love with it, Peter Schaefer? Well, it starts, first of all, in growing up in upstate New York, it's the creator's game. And we play for the honor of and for the benefit of the creator. So there's a little bit more of a spirituality to the game. You're talking capital C creator? 
Yes, okay. that's how we were brought up. Okay. That's how we were brought up. And we grew up 10 miles from the, the Indian reservation. And some of our best friends, the Iroquois, invented the game. And, and so that's where it starts, number one. Number two, it's, it's, it's a team game. You, you need 10 great players. You need 20 great players on the team. And it's all, it is all about the team. And then, it, you know, there's a skill involved of being able to run and handle a stick and work together, but there's the physical physicality of hockey and, and in football. There's the offensive complexity of basketball, the speed of soccer. There's a lot of great things to it. But growing up in upstate New York, we played it to honor the creator. That is so cool. And your passion runs deep. And now you've been given an opportunity to coach in the Denver Prep League. I'm a George Washington kid. I remember when lacrosse GW played, but East was dominant. The private schools were good. I never heard about South High having a lacrosse team, but educate us. Well, first of all, George Washington lost their program, so all the George Washington kids play for us. Yeah, one of our better players uh, goes to George Washington, the IB program. My daughter graduated from George Washington in the IB program. IB is International Baccalaureate. It's for the really smart kids. Keep going. Yes, I would not have been in. That I would have been growing up. So I would going. not have been. So my son went to South as a ninth grader, and the head coach at the time asked myself and Paul Mahoney, who had coached our kids all the way up from you know second grade to eighth grade, if we would coach the JV team. And we said sure. We thought we were done, and sort of had passed them along. And the varsity was one of the you know sixty fourth out of sixty eight teams in the state, and mm-hmm. our sons. We thought we'd be coaching them as ninth graders in JV, but they both played varsity. But we hung in there, and we coached the JV, and they had a good season. And the head coach moved back to Michigan, and the athletic director, Adam Kelsey, went out on a limb and said, you know, he wants to have Paul Mahoney as the head coach and me as the top assistant. And to have parent coaches in high school is not really you know, in vogue. You know, it's really a, an aberration right now, an outlier. And, but the kids have worked hard, and we're ready. You know, I think we're ranked th- third in the state right now in preseason, and it's exciting. We have a, a, you know, South is a very diverse school. It's not necessarily like East. It's a very diverse school, and we're very pleased with the diversity of school, that the type of people that my son goes to school with. Our lacrosse team sort of mirrors that. We have a bunch of inner-city kids and some kids that grow up around Wash Park, and they all get together, and they're doing great. And and, and it's exciting to hope that some of these kids are going to use sports not to earn a living, but to help them get to uh, some great schools and get a great education. Because there are scholarships available, as you proved. You went to school on a scholarship. And waiting for you with the big bullseye on their back are the perennial powerhouse East High Angels. When do you play them? We're trying to work that in with the COVID schedule and the cohorts, but we're hoping May 1st we had what would be called a friendly with them in the fall, and we were fortunate enough to, you know, to beat them. But Dylan Ward, who's the coach there at East, he plays for the Mammoth and the, played for the Outlaws. Great coach, great player, and it's great to have, finally, somebody to compete against East because, like you said, when you were growing up, they were the gold standard. And we're hoping that we can build us up to mirror the success of that program because they did a heck of a job and they still do a heck of a job. But we hope on May 1st that when the scoreboard is over that we beat them by at least one. 
And what about this Schaefer kid that you have on your team? Is he any good? Oh, well, you know, he's got to overcome a lot of bad genetics and bad coaching. But he's got a chance to be pretty good. He really works hard. He, you know, he's had a rough year. He was diagnosed with stage four cancer about a year ago. Came through it, knock on wood. And right now it's punched the bull in the nose and did not miss one practice or one game through treatment. And, you know, he's a good kid. This is unbelievable. Right now we're going to play a little clip that my friend Peter Schaefer sent over about his son, Gavin, and an organization that he's supporting. I'm Gavin Schaefer. I'm 16 years old. I live in Denver, Colorado. I've been playing lacrosse since I was about three or four years old. I developed uh, fever, night sweats, loss of appetite, and I lost like 40 to 50 pounds. And it turns out I had swollen lymph nodes in my chest and my neck, so they did a biopsy on one of them behind my lung. That's how they really diagnosed me. I had six months of chemotherapy through my pore in my chest, and I feel like I had a better response to it than most people I feel like would have because I knew what my sister went through and it was the same thing. I was kind of scared, of course, at the start, but then I just kind of wanted to be treated normal and not like I had cancer. I kind of just wanted to be treated like one of my friends, like a, like what I was treated before I got sick. I mean, it's frustrating not being able to like actually play lacrosse at 100% and like having to work your way back up into it. But I mean, it's just a fun way to really relieve stress and anxiety. Being on that floor with all these kids who are sick or sicker than I am, it's really just a change of perspective. Being able to see like all the hardships people are going through and all the like how they're surviving through even worse than I was. The more and more technological advancements or advancements in treatment that we could get to help kids with cancer have uh, less harsh treatment, it's something I really want to help out with. I plan to get all my teammates and friends and all my friends' teammates involved in order to really help spread awareness for this cause. I'm Gavin Schaefer, and you need to join Attack Cancer today. And thank you for sending me that, Peter. That was impressive. Gavin's a great-looking kid. Must have gotten that from his mom. And he's tough as nails, Correct. but he lost all that weight. And now he's a stud lacrosse player, and he's running, and he's physical. Is he knocking people down? He's a big physical kid, yeah. He can handle his own. He's much more talented. I'm much more gifted than his father ever was, that's for sure. And I looked into that organization, and it's formed on the basis of a lacrosse kid similarly afflicted. And when I hear about Hodgkins, I always think about Mickey Mantle. What's going on? Do people know what causes this dread disease? And my gosh, you and your family have been through it. Nobody really knows. My daughter, she beat it three years ago. And to think that have two siblings with the same cancer, you know, they, they really had never seen that at Children's Hospital. But St. Jude's is doing a study on this. And so we've all given our blood and they're studying it, that type of stuff. It's very gratifying to see that your kids can beat this thing. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not something that I would wish on my worst enemy or my worst enemy's kids. You know, cancer is a dreaded enemy and a dreaded foe. We got to keep punching them in the mouth. And the Headstrong Foundation is just, it's a lacrosse cancer foundation started by, a, as you said, a young man who did not succeed, but it was his desire that he was going to make other people's lives better. 
and then he was going to start his foundation and, and they named Gavin the spokesperson for 2021. And it's, it's a humbling honor for him. And, and, you know, we're excited to see not only what he could do with this honor, but you know, how, how he can help other people. Cause I can tell you what we've been through as a family the last three years, we could not have done it without the tremendous support of family, friends, people we didn't even know, uh, doctors, counselors, the whole shooting match. It really does take a village and, the Headstrong Foundation provides that village for a lot of people that don't have the resources. Well, that's a great charitable cause. You've been through so much. What is the best thing that people who know you and like you, what is the best thing they can do? Just tell you that they care, but beyond that, hug their own kids? Or what do you tell people? And what is Gavin and Lillian? What do they tell people? Well, I think that you know, I don't know, you know, our family's not set up to draw attention to ourselves. And, you know, Gavin really wanted to be very humble, but it does take a lot. And sometimes, you know, the greatest thing that people could do for us, you know, going through, you know, like Winston Churchill said, when, you know, when you're going through hell, just keep on walking was that, you know, sometimes people just would, you know, just to call up and treat you normally and not talk about it to bring food over Sometimes, you know, you know, help take the kids to, to sports, things like that, you know, and, and my wife who, who went through the brunt of it, you know, just come over and, and keep her occupied for an hour or two hours. So she doesn't have to think about this thing that's right in her face 24 seven. So there's a lot of things that you, you do as, as a good friend and, and ask nothing in return. And, you know, we were very blessed to have guys like Chuck Pagano, who was a cancer survivor. He would send videos, you know, once a month to the kids, inspirational videos and, you know, players would send jerseys and, and, you know, so we were, we were fortunate to have those resources. A lot of families don't. And when you go to the seventh floor at children's hospital, you know, you see people that are in worse shape than you are people with less resources, people that we were fortunate that we, we were 15 minutes from the hospital. So when Gavin would go there six days a week, it was a 15 minute drive, but, Sometimes you're there and there are people from Wyoming and North Dakota, South Dakota, Utah, and they were driving eight to 10 hours and they were living out of a hotel and the imposition on that family and the inability to, to, you know, to work and to lead a normal life, you know, those are the little things that make a difference. Well, that's a great answer and good to know. And your perspective is so important and your work so valuable, Peter Schaefer, and I care, we all care. I hope you get through to the other side. And I've learned more about you. And do you think there's anything from the Native American spirituality that has helped you through it? I, I know you're not Native American, but I bet they have concepts that maybe help you through this journey. Well, you know, it is interesting. And, and growing up with Native Americans and playing lacrosse with them, they really do have a very simplistic view of life. And that is to be a good person, to do good work and to care about and think about other people. And if you do that, then you, you, you do go to the other side without shame. And, you know, we all get into our busy lives and, you know, I'm very blessed to be successful. You're incredibly blessed to be as incredibly successful as you are. But I do think that at the end of the day, that's what matters. And, you know, as Jackie Robinson said, you know, life is only important based on the positive impact it has on other lives. And 
you know, we have these conversations all the time, and even now with whether people should get the vaccine, and and that's having a positive impact on other lives. Get the vaccine. Yeah, you might be afraid of it, and you might think that, well, right, but it, by you doing it, we can give our kids their, their childhood back that you and I had that we didn't have to worry about pandemics. We didn't have to worry about masks. We got to play sports. And we as adults should do as Jackie Robinson said, and that's, you know, have a positive impact on other lives. And that's what's going to matter at the end of the day. Well, I think what matters is that we all recover. We move on. We've experienced this pandemic. And I know that I'm going to follow this lacrosse season like no other lacrosse season because I am going to root for South. Can I call it South slash GW to win the DPL crown? No, no, it's, it's all South. It's all right. I'm going to root for South. I'm going to root for Gavin Schaefer and his papa. Thanks a lot, Peter. Really appreciate your time in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And best of luck to you and your family, okay? I appreciate it. And you do a great job. And it's fun to listen. And and what you've meant for this community and your father, you know, it's a a credit to you. And you guys do live like, you know, Jackie Robinson said. So thanks for having me on. Thank you, Peter. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, get a great high quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP and help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. Gosh, I had another great week practicing law. So many good results for my clients. That makes me happy. If you'd like to be happy, give me a call, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. I'm getting good at this. Give me a call, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for your problem or case, I bet I know the right one, and I will tell you who it is. Thank you. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) 
Now, part of that was serious and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday. And if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. If you want to help Peter Schaefer and his kid Gavin, then do what is suggested during the interview. Go to the Headstrong website and find out more. See if you can help Peter Schaefer. God help you. God help you and your family. I wish you nothing but the best. Same to Elizabeth Rosenthal. Good to meet you. Dave Gunders, our troubadour. What a song. Way of forgetting. I won't forget this show. Don't forget to tune in next week, Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.